We're coming to the end of David's journey as he's been prepared since the time he was a teenager, anointed by Samuel the prophet and told that he would be king of Israel one day. And he spent years upon years upon years running from Saul. And tonight as we take a look, we're going to see the culmination of God doing the work that he promised to David. And as we've been looking at the life of David, we've been really trying to study and grasp that concept. What does it mean to be a man or woman after God's own heart? And one of the things that really leap out from the life of David is he didn't self-promote. Twice he had Saul's life in his hand, and he didn't take it. And we'll see tonight when, when the Lord finally says that Saul's days are finished, and Saul dies and, and, uh, and goes to eternity, you're going to see David, rather than throwing a party, rather than celebrating the death of his enemy, you're going to see him mourn with a pure heart. You're not going to see any bitterness or anger or wrath in his heart because he released all of those things to God. Being a man after God's own heart means that we'd have that same heart, a similar heart that Christ had. And 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that when Jesus was facing all of the, the opposition that he faced, when they were pulling out his beard, spitting in his face, calling him names, when he was being reviled, he did not revile in return. But he committed himself to the hands of the Father. And that's the key to being able to relinquish bitterness and anger and, and all that stuff. The scripture lays out for us, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. If that's true, and we believe it, then we are to take those wrongs that people have done to us and relinquish them into the hands of the Father and let God deal with it. And you need to be free. Not holding on to it. And I think, you know, when I look at Jesus and I, I see the things he went through and the fact that he didn't revile him, here's the deal. I can make it all look right on the outside. For example, if I'm walking down the street and somebody runs over and rips out my beard, maybe I'll keep my mouth shut. Maybe he spits in my face, calls me a bunch of names and runs off. And I might not say a word, but inside... Man, I, I am just letting him have it up one side and down the other because that's what's in my heart. And that's what that reveals. And so as David was going through the ten years of fleeing in the wilderness and dealing with Saul hating him and dealing with all those things, God was showing David over and over and over again the deceitfulness of his own heart. So that David, moment by moment, opportunity by opportunity, failure or, or success, victory or defeat, David could look, he could see, yep, I need to confess that to the Lord. I need to give that to Him. I need to, to trim these areas of my life. So, when the day came for him to be king, he would be a king after God's own heart. Not perfect. Doesn't mean sinless. We know he's not sinless, right? Not sinless, but one who is fully committed to, to God being his shelter, being his shield. And we know, we saw David have times where he, he ran from the Lord and he went to the camp of the enemy. And we saw God work in his providence to get him out of the land of the enemy and back into the right place that he needed to be. And that's the same way 
God wants to work in our life. But if we want to be men and women after God's own heart, then we need to make that decision because the wrath of man will never accomplish the righteousness of God. That's the word. So if I'm upset, maybe someone has done me wrong and it's fully their fault. The Bible doesn't care. You give it to God. You don't get the right to carry it. You don't have the right to let that be a a burden on your back. You are to relinquish it to the Father. The reason Jesus was able to, to go through the things He did, the Scripture tells us that He relinquished all of that to the hands of the Father. It's all God. Lord, it's all yours. Sorry, I was, I was encouraged on Sunday morning when we had an opportunity to, to watch a video on some of the guys, the, the chaplains in the Sudan. And, uh, and one of the guys, he's talking on the, on the video and he says, in essence, you know, it's not his exact words, but he's ready to die. But the reason he's ready to die is because I'm God's servant. The scripture says in Galatians that I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live, I live in the power that God has given me to be who I need to be. The concept is I'm already dead and in him in Christ. I'm his. And so whatever happens, happens. And that's what we see in the life of David. David was able to do that. Now, I'm not, when I say Jesus was able to do that, you guys might write it off. Well, of course, Jesus was able to do it. He's God. Well, David wasn't God. And he was able to be a man after God's own heart. So if David could do it, you don't have an excuse for him. He's a man just like any of us. We are able to relinquish those things to the Father. Here's the reality. We don't want to let him go. We don't want to let him go. We, we want to hold on to the hate and the bitterness that keeps us warm at night. When we think and we mull over in our mind how someone did us wrong and how we'd like to get him, we just warm ourselves by the fire of the enemy. Oh, yeah, I just can't wait till he gets his due. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, it says that love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. And it bears no evil. It's not looking for the destruction of somebody else. Well, you know, yeah, that's true. But I, I fall short on that kind of love, you know. But the Bible tells in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 1, Pursue love. By the way, that's a command. Pursue love. God wants us to desire that. When In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, we're told in singular, the fruit of... Of the Spirit, not the fruits. It says the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this, Jesus said. Love God, love people. Those are Jesus' words. So we want to come to that place where we can recognize this is how God is calling us to be. Calling us to live our lives. He doesn't say to live your life, harbor bitterness and anger and resentment in your hearts. Oh, wait a minute. If you go to Galatians chapter 5 and you back up a few verses, you'll see those things. It's called the works of the flesh. And the reason why Saul was rejected from being king is because he would not deal with the flesh. Jesus said... Or the Lord told Saul, wipe out the flesh. Destroy the Amalekites, remember? 
In the Bible, the Amalekites are a picture of the flesh. Destroy the Amalekites. He didn't do it. So he could never be God's king because he allowed the flesh to reign. So as we look at this, we're going to come, we're going to come in chapter 31 and we see the end of Saul. You know, remember last time David was at this battle, but God through his providence sent him home. So in chapter 31, we go back to the battle that David left. It says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Machishua, Saul's sons. Well, Saul's judgment day had come. I know Jonathan and David dreamed of a day when David would be king and Jonathan could be his right hand. Jonathan's race was done. I wonder what it was like for Jonathan, this battle. Because for Jonathan, most of the battles of his life included God delivering him in incredible, in, in, incredible ways. He was a man who loved the Lord, who served God with his whole heart, very much like Caleb. But it says here that the Philistines, when they routed the children of Israel, they followed hard after the sons of Saul. So they're running, they're trying to, to hold on to their life, but the Philistines overtake them. And the first name that we read is Jonathan's. They got Jonathan and Abinadab, the sons of Saul, fall on this day. This battle that David could have been a part of if God hadn't intervened. In verse 3 it says, And the battle became fierce against Saul. So they got Saul's sons, and now they're pointing their attention toward Saul. And the archers hit him, and he was severely wounded by the archers. And Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. It's interesting that he was afraid. David had this concept that you do not touch God's anointed. God made Saul king. And I don't want to be the guy who does God's job in removing Saul. There's an important concept in that for us. Because a lot of times we think God needs our help to accomplish something. Maybe we don't understand what the scriptures say. The scriptures tell us that a nation gets the king they deserve. Uh oh. <laughs> the scriptures tell us that it's God who raises up kings and raises up nations and brings nations down. That it's God who does those. We think God needs our help. Now, I've shared with you a number of times. I'm not talking about voting. I'm just talking about trust in the Lord. I believe that I will give an account to God for what I did with the freedom God gave me. So I will always do what I can to, to vote and be a part of the process. But I know it's not going to be me who decides. It's going to be the Lord. And the king we get will be based on the spiritual condition of the nation. And in case you haven't looked... The spiritual condition of the nation is not all that hot. And it, to me, it doesn't really make any difference which one of the candidates win. Whichever one wins, whichever one takes a place, we will receive the king we deserve. And whatever it's going to take to cause men and women to call on the name of God, 
not to praise a particular party or another. And if whatever God needs to do to cause that to happen, that's better for the eternal souls of those who are seeking uh, the truth than it is for the nation or our economy or whether or not, you know, my silly house in California is ever worth a plum nickel again. Doesn't make any difference. What souls, what people are going to come to know the Lord, that's important. And what is necessary for that to happen. And whatever it is, we as God's people ought to be willing to say, yeah, Lord, I relinquish all that stuff to you. You're in control and allow God to do his perfect work. Well, the armor bearer won't do it. So therefore, Saul took his sword and fell on it. Now, when we look at this here, this just sums up the life of Saul. Faced with a problem, don't know what to do, don't call on the Lord, don't ask God, just try to fix it yourself. All the way to the end. I've been struck with an arrow, I'm going to die, I don't want these guys to... Does what he did stop them from abusing him? No. We're going to read about it. It doesn't stop him from abusing him, it doesn't stop him from doing all the things he was worried about. What does it do? It, it, it enables Saul to finally be done. So to finally take matters into his own hands and, and you know, make, it, make it happen so that it can be over. And so the end of Saul is just like every decision he ever made. I'll solve it myself. I won't trust God. I'll solve it myself. I won't trust God. I'll solve it myself. I won't trust God. All the way to the end. That's how he finishes his race. He started with so much hope. Remember, he's a king taller than everybody else. And the Lord was with him. And they had this great victory against the enemies of Jabesh Gilead. He, he, he led 330,000 Israeli soldiers to victory against the Philistines. And it was incredible the hope that the nation had behind this king. But he would start to trust in himself and solve his own issues and not relinquish things to the Lord and not obey God. And this is how he ends up. <clears throat> he falls on his sword. Now, according to the language of the scripture, he was done anyway. Wherever the, wherever the arrow had pierced him, Saul was dying. He helps and speeds up the process. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. You know, a lot of times I just read that and just would continue on. But you know what? The choices we make, other people will follow. The choices we make, things we do, it's always somebody behind us watching. Sometimes it's our kids, maybe it's our grandkids. Somebody's watching. Maybe it's your neighbor. Somebody's watching, and the choices we make carry ramifications. People follow what we do. If we lead well, we can lead people to the promised land like Joshua did, right? If we don't lead well, we can lead people to destruction like Saul and his armor bearer. And all the men of Israel that were with him. No one lives in a vacuum. Nothing that we do or say or accomplish in our life only affects us. There's no such thing. No man is an island. None. There are people that you don't even understand whose life you are affecting. And so this is, this is what we see with Saul. So it says in verse 6, So Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. 
everyone that was with Saul died. That's pretty incredible, huh? There are, there are times when someone has done someone else wrong to the point where, you know, when their demise comes, people are able to celebrate, oh, finally that guy got what he deserved. But we lose sight of all the other people who are affected as well. Nobody goes down by themselves. That's why the scripture says, love does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't rejoice in someone getting what we think they deserve. Here's what the scripture does tell us. The scripture does tell us to love mercy. The scripture does tell us, do not be deceived. Whatever a man sows, what? So if I sow mercy, what will I reap? If I sow judgment, what will I reap? A man will reap what he sows. So we have to recognize those things and understand that this is how God wants us to walk. This is how we become a man after God's own heart. And it says, And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled, and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. So everything that Saul had ever gained in his kingdom, he loses. Because the scripture, the psalmist would write this, the psalmist would tell us, he labors in vain who tries to build the house without the Lord, right? Without the Lord. If whoever tries to build, whoever tries to accomplish, if it's not in Christ, if it's not in the Lord, if we're not doing it for him, what we're doing is not going to last. It's just going to blow away. What is Solomon? What is Solomon's frustration at the end of his life? This massive kingdom that he built. So much gold, the people stopped counting it. Have you ever been there? I've got so much money, I don't even count it anymore. There's no point. They stopped counting the gold. More horses than he knew what to do with. More wives than anybody has a business having. All this stuff, all these things, all these... He says, this massive kingdom, he says, and when I die, I'm going to give it to a fool. And it all went away. His son caused the kingdom to split, northern and southern kingdoms, and Israel goes into a downward decline all the way to the point where they cease to exist. What was it all for? Because Solomon begins to lose his focus in his building. All of a sudden it was about him. It wasn't about the Lord. It was about his wisdom and bringing fame to himself. And the Bible said, Solomon, don't multiply for yourself wise. But he ignored that. Why did the Bible say not to multiply wise? Because they will turn your heart away from God. What happened? They turned his heart away from God. Whoever builds, whatever we do, whatever we try to accomplish, if it's not for him... When Solomon or when, when Saul goes, all the lands he won just went back to the Philistines. It's all theirs again. It's all gone. The end is as miserable as it possibly could be for them. It happened on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. 
And they put his armor in the temple of Ashtoreth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bet-Shan. You go to Israel today, you can actually walk through the ruins of Bet-Shan, the city where they posted the body of Saul and Jonathan and his brothers. They put their armor in the temple of their God so that they could celebrate their God's victory over the God of Israel. And they put their heads and their bodies nailed to the wall on the outside. And that's where they hung. Now verse 11 says, Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshean. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Now if you don't understand what just took place... You miss out part of the story. Jabesh Gilead. Remember I told you in the beginning of Saul's reign, there was a a split in the nation. We don't really want the king. Yeah, we'll take the king. So since they couldn't make up their minds, Saul just went back to farming. And while he's farming, there's no king. The men of Jabesh Gilead, these men, they sent out the call, Help, help, the Philistines are abusing us. They're coming. They're an army. They're going to wipe us out. So as they, they, they are facing this enemy, they send out the call. Saul moved with compassion. He decides, all right, we have to answer the call. He sounds a trumpet in Israel. He unites the whole nation. 330,000 men come to his aid, and they go and deliver the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And when Saul dies, and nobody else cares, the men of Jabesh-Gilead go get his body they travel all night they risk their lives to go into the teeth of the philistine kingdom to take the bodies of dead men and bring them home a lot of people say that's strange that's weird it doesn't make any sense but if you ever served in the military You may understand it a little bit better. Maybe I can help a little. In the Marine Corps, there's this concept that we'll never leave one of our guys behind. And there have been a number of Marines in the past who have perished trying to go back and get their fallen comrades. And people say, that's dumb. Yeah, it's not dumb. Let me tell you why it's not dumb. If you're that guy... Stuck in the middle of the bush, no place to go, surrounded. Let me tell you what it tells you. They are coming for me. And if I know they are coming for me, I will hang on. I will continue to fight. And I will continue to look for them. And because every man in the military loves the concept that if I'm out there by myself, stuck someplace, they will come for me. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but they are coming. Because of that, they will all do the same thing. We'll go get you. We will come. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead, because early in the beginning, 40 years earlier, Saul had sown mercy and compassion and care. And 40 years later, he reaps it on 
after he died, the men of Jabesh-Gilead go get him. They take him off the wall, and they, they burn him. Their bodies are so defaced, so uh, chopped up that they, that they can't bury him. So they burn him so that they get the flesh. It speeds up the decomposition, and they take the bones, put them in an ostuary, and bury them under a tree there in Jabesh-Gilead. It says they took their bones, buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and fasted seven days. Seven days. They fasted. We see the, the fruit of what God's Word calls us to. As we're, as we're thinking about this and as we're considering this, I want to encourage you to, to turn with me to the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 6, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the Scripture. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? You want to know? There it is. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. And that's what we see. That's what we see in the men of Jabesh Gilead. That's what we see at the end of Saul. Not anger, frustration, oh, he finally got what he deserved. And you really want to understand that, you've got to turn the page. And you've got to look at, at 2 Samuel chapter 1 as we continue on. It says, Now it came to pass, after the death of Saul, when David had returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had stayed two days in Ziglag. So remember, that's the land of the Philistines. The land the Philistines had given him. There he is at Ziglag. Remember, he returned all the women and children that had been taken, that he had lost in the flesh. It says in verse 3, or in verse 2, on the third day, interesting. How many times do you think that happens in the Bible? On the third day, how many times do you think things happen like that? It's probably just coincidence, right? That there's a lot of things like this that happen on the third day. On the third day, behold, it happened that a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dust on his head. And so it was, when he came to David, he fell on the ground and prostrated himself. And David said to him, where have you come from? And, the, and the, so he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, how did the matter go? Please tell me. And he answered, the people have fled from the battle. Many of the people are fallen and dead. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead also. Now this guy doesn't realize what he just told David. He thinks he's going to get a reward. And a, there's a difference of opinion. Nobody really knows whether he's lying or telling the truth when we get to the part where he talks about how Saul died. Some people say he's lying. Some people fabricating a story and putting himself into it. Maybe, maybe Saul didn't quite finish the job and this guy comes and finishes it. But the point is, he thinks David's going to rejoice because his enemy's dead. But David's heart isn't full of bitterness. David's heart isn't full of the wrath of man because the wrath of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. He had relinquished his enemy into the hands of God and allowed God to do the work. And he still firmly believes nobody touches God's anointed. That's God's job and his job only. But this guy comes to David thinking he's telling him good news. He also told him that David's best friend on earth is dead. Best friend that he ever had. Then the young man said to him, 
I, I, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on his spear. Indeed, the chariots and the horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and he called to me. And I said, here I am. And he said to me, who are you? And I answered and said, I'm an Amalekite. Amalekite? Does that ring a bell? Those were the fellows that Saul was supposed to wipe all out. Remember a picture of the flesh? He was supposed to write out, wipe out all the Amalekites. So if what this guy says is true, the person who killed Saul was someone that he should have wiped out in the battle earlier. Because if we do not eradicate the flesh, the flesh will get you. That's what it does. So he says, he called me and I came to him and said, I'm an Amalekite. <clears throat> and so, uh, so I answered him and he said to me, please stand over me and kill me for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and I killed him because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and I brought them here to my Lord. Now, you know, he's thinking about a reward. You know, he's thinking, oh, I've done this thing. I've done a favor for David. I'm going to put myself in a good place. Everybody knows David's supposed to be king. Everybody knows David has slain his ten thousands and Saul his thousands. Everybody acknowledges the fact that David was this great man. So here's my opportunity. Now, maybe he just came upon the body of Saul and he took those things and he rushes and he makes a story. Maybe he comes upon the body of Saul where the scripture says he fell on his sword, but he wasn't dead yet. And Saul looks up and asks for help. He did it before. There's no reason why he couldn't have done it again. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It gives us those two stories. It doesn't tell us one's fabricated or, or one is true. He gives us those two stories. So if we're going to reconcile those stories together, he falls down. The armor bearer assumes he's dead, kills himself. And the Amalekite comes upon the scene. And Saul, still breathing, is asking for him to finish the job that he didn't quite finish. Whichever the case is, the Amalekite, the flesh, is thinking it's going to get a reward from the king, the man after God's own heart. That the man after God's own heart will reward the flesh because of the silly things that the flesh will do. You ever done something for the purpose of being rewarded? Oh, I did this, I, I, I volunteered to clean the church. And I was doing it for quite a while, volunteering, cleaning the church, but... Nobody ever said thanks. So I stopped. But why were you cleaning the church? To be thanked? Remember the story we told a couple of Sundays ago, right? Remember the, the, the parable that, that, um, that uh, Jim Elliot's wife, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot, would tell? That Jesus came to the disciples and said, I want everybody to pick up a stone. We remember? Pick up a stone. Peter grabs that little stone. And they climb to the top of the mountain. They get on top of the mountain. And Jesus says, okay, everybody sit down. And they sit down. And Jesus turned all the rocks to bread. And they sat down and they ate the bread. But Peter just had a little piece of bread. And then after lunch, Jesus said, okay, everybody go pick up a stone. And Peter said, I know how this works now. So he goes and gets a big old stone and he throws it up on his shoulder and he's carrying this big old boulder because he didn't have a big meal for lunch, but he was going to have a big dinner. And he carried that big old stone, barely able to follow the Lord, coming down the hill. Finally, they stopped beside a river in the evening 
And Jesus, as they stopped beside the river, says, okay, now throw your stones in the water. And all the disciples look at him like, huh? And Elizabeth Elliot said, so Jesus said, did you not listen to what I said? I told you, pick up a stone and follow me. Who were you carrying the rock for? The story here is the Amalekite, a picture of the flesh, is desiring to be rewarded, thinking it's done something to help the man after God's own heart. The flesh will never help the man after God's own heart. Your flesh, Paul said, in my flesh, what? Nothing good dwells. Paul would go on to say, do you think, O foolish Galatians, that that which has begun in the spirit can be completed in the flesh? Can the flesh help us? It cannot. The attitudes of the flesh. We, we come to Galatians chapter 5. And we come to the works of the flesh. And we look through the works of the flesh. And we talk about selfish ambition. And we talk about works of wrath. And we talk about anger and clamor and backbiting. And all these things that are listed in Galatians 5. Do we really think those works will somehow accomplish God's work? They won't. They won't. The question is... In your life and in your service and in the things you choose to do, whether you choose to serve with children's ministry or you don't, my question is the same. Who are you doing it or not doing it for? Because if you're doing it or not doing it for yourself, what's the difference? It's all it's all wrong. It's a work of the flesh. It's an Amalekite. Looking for a reward for the death of a king. But David, a man after God's own heart, shows us how we need to treat that Amalekite. What we need to do when the flesh rises up and desires that reward. Scripture says in verse 11, Therefore David took hold of his clothes and he tore them and so did all the men who were with him. If you lead, they will follow. David tears his clothes. Now, every, those guys stood beside David when Saul was in the cave, and they said, kill him, kill him, kill him. And David said, no, I'm not touching God's anointed. I'm not going to do it. And so now, at a time when they should have or could have celebrated, you're king, you're king, you're going to have the throne, everything you've longed for, all your life is going to happen. But rather than celebrating, rather than partying about the idea that finally the enemies is, is, is vanquished and he can go, he tears his clothes. It's a symbol of abject humiliation and sorrow for who? And if you try to say it's for Jonathan, you're going to have a problem in a few verses. He tears his cloak and he enters the time of mourning. It says in verse 12, They mourned and they wept and they fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord, for the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. He did not party because Saul was gone. He was brokenhearted about all the lives that were lost, including Saul's. He was brokenhearted over what happened. And by the way, one of the things I want to point out to you, and what, one of the things you'll often see in terms of fasting, 
in the Bible says that they, they mourned and they wept and they fasted. The fasting is a natural occurrence from the mourning and the weeping. They were so focused in the mourning and the weeping and the crying that they didn't eat. They didn't proclaim a fast. It's just like when we, when we fast, when, when our hearts are focused on the Lord and we're drawn after Him and we're looking for Him and we're so captivated by Him that we don't eat, that we just continue to seek after Him, that's what a fast is. Well, we can call a fast and we can say, we're not going to eat for, for 14 days. But let me tell you, I'm not saying for every person, but for a lot of people, all that becomes is a 14-day diet where all they can think about is what they don't have. And a real fast is so focused on the Lord that, you don't, that you're, you're focused on Him and not on those things. So we look at it just like that, that mindset, that heart behind the fast. Here, how they fast. What are they fasting for? What's going on? They're mourning for the loss. And they don't eat. They mourn and they, they don't eat till evening. They set aside and just focus on these things. That's where their mind is. That's where their heart is for those who had fallen by the sword. Verse 13, Then David said to the young man, who told, him, who told him, where are you from? And he, and he told him, where are you from? He answered, I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, the flesh. So David said to him, this is not, by the way, a good thing to hear. How was it that you were not afraid to put forth your hand and destroy the Lord's anointed? What right do you have to touch God's people? Yeah, that's not good. Then David called for one of the young men and he said, go near this guy and execute him. And so they killed him. They came, struck him, and he died. Make no provision for the flesh. That's what the scripture declares. There is no peace with the flesh. If you try to make peace with the flesh, you are going to struggle, fail, be consumed by your desire, your needs, your rights, your whatever. You must, you must not make peace with the flesh. So he obliterates it. Another great picture of that is is Abraham. Abraham had two sons, right? The book of Galatians tells us that one was a picture of the flesh and the other was a picture of the spirit. The fruit of the flesh was the son of the bondwoman. The fruit of the Spirit, or the Son of the Spirit, or the example of the Spirit, was the son of the free woman. The free woman, or his wife, gave birth to Isaac. The bondwoman gave birth to Ishmael. Ishmael becomes a picture of the flesh. What did God tell Abraham to do with Ishmael? Cast him out. And when he cast him out, what did Abraham give him? Abraham, probably the richest man around at that time. Thousands of goats and herds and camels and donkeys. He could have given him all kinds of stuff. What did he give him? Nothing. One skin of water. Which is not even enough for them to travel across the desert. Because the Bible says, make no provision for the flesh. Now before you start feeling bad for Ishmael, everybody remembers the story, right? God tells Abraham, you give your son to me and I'll take care of him. And so when Ishmael runs out of water and they pass out in the desert, who rescues him? God. And so what does Ishmael learn to trust in that moment? What does he discover? God or that his father's rich? He discovers God because his dad didn't take care of him. God did. 
And so this is the idea, and this is the picture that the scripture lays out for us. Make no provision for the flesh. Obliterate it. The flesh thinks it's going to get a reward. The flesh thinks it ought to get lots of thanks. The, the flesh thinks that it ought to be appreciated for all it does. And maybe it should. But if you're doing it for appreciation, then you're doing it for yourself. If you're doing it for praise, you're doing it for yourself. If I'm loving my wife so that she will submit to her husband, I'm doing it for myself. And I'm not being obedient to what the Word says. Because the Word says to love my wife like Christ loves the church. And Christ doesn't love the church for what He gets out of it. Right? Christ loves the church for what He can give. It's the same way. Every aspect of our relationship, whatever we're doing, the flesh wants reward. The flesh wants adoration. The flesh wants a billboard with your picture on it. The flesh wants praise. The flesh wants all those things. And if that's your motivation, then you are sitting in the place of God in your life. It's all for me. Instead of it's all for Him. Focusing, desiring, wanting to see, longing that God would be seen to be real and true and every man a liar. God is able. God is able to deliver from the uttermost. It's all about Him. It's not about me. And that's the destruction of the Amalekite. So David lamented with this lamentation over who? Saul. David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. You, I, I just, you have got to grasp the idea that David's heart was free of bitterness. A heart full of bitterness would not mourn like this, would not write a psalm, would not cry and tear his clothes and slaughter the man who killed his enemy. The, the, the heart full of bitterness will rejoice in the fact that the enemy has fallen. And if we have that kind of bitterness in our heart, the Bible says you need to deal with it. You need to deal with that root of bitterness in your life because that root of bitterness will not destroy the one you're bitter with. It will destroy you. It'll take it all. The locusts will come in and eat it all. And you'll have nothing but your bitterness to keep you company. But David, a man or woman after God's own heart, relinquishes the hurt someone has done them to God. He's the judge, not me. He's the one. But, what, but they did me wrong. Okay, they did you wrong. I can acknowledge that. Okay, they are worthy of whatever, 99 lashes with a flagellum, whatever you want. I don't care. They're worthy of all that stuff. So what? You still are not the judge. You still are not the jury. You are still not the condemner. You are a servant of the Most High God, and God says, you give me their wrongs, just like I took yours. He took my wrongs and gave me his rights. So I got to do the same for others. Commit their wrongs to him. 
Don't care how many times. How many times should I forgive my neighbor? As many as seven times? Yeah, oops. There's a problem there, huh? And the picture of the 70 times 7 is the 490 years that God forgave the nation of Israel. So as soon as you have forgiven someone for 490 years for the same thing, then you have a qualm. The problem is, (laughs) we're not going to live that long. That's the point, right? Forgive. What does the scripture tell us? If you will not forgive, what? Neither will your Father in heaven forgive you. Now, here's the important thing to understand about that. Listen, if you are a child of God, you have already been forgiven. So the point that God is making is, since you are already forgiven, I expect you to forgive. Doesn't mean, well, 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 so what if I don't forgive? We mean, what if you don't forgive? God said forgive. You don't get to say, what if I don't forgive? Do it. You don't get to, you don't get to try to, you know, find the loophole. There is no loophole with God. At the great white throne judgment, there's no loophole that somebody's going to sneak into heaven on. Let it go. David's heart, man. David's heart is pure before God. Listen to how he sings this song. So he told them to teach them, the children of Judah, the song of the bow. He called it the song of the bow. Indeed, it is written in the book of Jasher. The beauty of Israel is slain on your high places. Who's he talking about? Saul. What did he call him? My worst enemy. The guy who tried to pin my head to the wall several times with a spear. The guy who constantly hunted me when he promised he wouldn't hunt me anymore. The guy who told lies about me. The guy who did all these things. No, that's not what he said. What did he call him? The beauty of Israel. No. Animosity. No bitterness. It's gone. How the mighty have fallen. He didn't call him the weak. He doesn't call him the stumbling, bumbling moron that I snuck upon twice and could have killed any time. He calls him the mighty. He gives Saul a place of honor right next to the friend he said was better than the love of any woman he'd ever known. And that was Jonathan. He made Saul equal. That's not a heart full of bitterness. It's not a heart full of wrath. It's a heart that's been set free by relinquishing the hurts that he had done to him, to the Father. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the daughters of the Philist, lest the daughters of the Philistine rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. This is what he says in, in verse twenty. He says nobody should rejoice over the death of Saul. Nobody. Don't you let them Philistines go singing songs about what a great thing they've done. Don't you rejoice over the destruction of Saul. The heart set free. He goes in verse 21. O mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew nor rain upon you. Anybody been to Gilboa lately? In case you're wondering, Gilboa is barren. Rocky dirt. Nothing grows there. Let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for the shield of the mighty is cast away. Who's he talking about? The shield of the mighty is cast away. The shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. 
You see the honor that he's bestowing upon his enemy. Why? Because he was God's anointed. He wasn't perfect. It wasn't right most of his life. But David honored the position of God's anointed, even though Saul was not worthy of the honor. He honored him. He gave him respect he didn't earn. He gave him respect that wasn't due. The book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5 says, Let every man so love his wife as his own body and see that the wife respects her husband. David respected Saul. He was not worthy. But he was obedient to the office. And the scripture calls us to be the same way. To be obedient to the office. It's not about who earned what. It's about how does God want me to live my life. How do I serve him? If I respect in order to receive love, then who am I doing it for? Myself. I'm carrying the rock for me. I am the Amalekite looking for a reward. If I'm a man or woman after God's own heart, I do it as unto the Lord, right? That's why. I love my wife or respect my husband. Or I honor my parents. Or I do any of the number of things that God's word calls us to do. I do it because I love him. Because love, the Bible says, love sets you free from the law. If you are under love, you are not under the law. We, are, we, are com- we commonly like to say things like this. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm under grace. I'm not under law. No, you're, not. you're under love. And, and while you're thinking about that concept, understand this. Love always does more than the law requires. What? Yeah, you know, I don't have to pass a law. I never had to pass a law for my wife to love her children. To feed her children, to clothe her children, to make sure the kids were safe. Whether the kids are simple or difficult. She loved them. She did more than the law required. Love always does more. That's why the Lord said, if you are under love, you are free of the law. Because now it's not your motivation to receive a reward. Your motivation is to love. And that's why we do it. That's why we reach out. That's why we have those things. Well, he goes on. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. He calls each of them mighty warriors. And look at verse 23. Saul and Jonathan were beloved. Oh, by the way, that word beloved means much loved. What? He's his enemy. What did Jesus say? I tell you. Love your enemies. Love those who despitefully use you. Anybody ever been used? Okay, well, you can make whatever argument you want. This is Jesus' words. He says, love them. And just in case you're looking for that loophole, maybe he meant phileo, be their friend. (laughs) Sorry. He uses the word agapeo. That's a love that gives without expecting anything in return. The love of God. That's the way. Self-sacrificing love. A love that gives all. It says Saul and Jonathan were beloved. And what else? Pleasant in their lives. 
Was that how you would describe Saul? Man. But David's set free, man. He's set free. Whatever wrong Saul had done for him, he said, give it to the Lord. And he's honoring a brother from his nation, the king, the office that God had given unto him. He's honoring him. And in their death, they were not divided. They were swifter than eagle. They were stronger than lions. Every glory he ascribed to Jonathan, he also gave to the man who taught Jonathan everything he knew. His father. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than iron. They were not divided. The father and the son. Jonathan would never leave his father's side. No matter how wrong his father was. Why? Because the Bible says honor your father and mother. So he honored him. He honored him. Gave honor to his, to his dad. Even though he understood that David should be king. Oh daughters of Israel. Weep over Saul. Weep over Saul. Why? Let me tell you. Because Jonathan's okay. Saul's not. Jonathan's okay. Jonathan's looking forward to an eternity with God. Saul is looking forward to an eternity without God. Weep for Saul. Weep over him. Who clothed you. Then he gives them the reason. He gives them the praise. He clothed you in scarlet and luxury. He did good things for the nation. Who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. Things were good while he was king. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan was slain in your high places. And I am distressed for you my brother Jonathan. For you have been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Now there are some people who read that and say, well that means that Jonathan and David had a homosexual experience. Well, that's not what the scripture says. The scripture said they enjoyed the beauty of a relationship between two men who cared for one another. Oh, how can that be? Or I can explain it to you. I can explain it to you like this. Find two Marines who fought in the sand of Iraq who were in the mud and the blood together and try to figure out what binds them. How many times did Jonathan and David go to battle together? Do you remember that Jonathan delivered the children of Israel by himself and then shortly after that David delivered them by himself when he defeated Goliath? They spent the same time in the mud together, in the battle together. They were united. They were tied together. Their souls were knit. They loved each other. And he said, that relationship is more important to me, more wonderful than the love of women. Because there's nobody that's as united as brothers who have fought together. You don't understand it? Find somebody who fought with somebody and ask them about it. They'll be able to explain it to you. That's what the word is talking about. It's what, that's the battle. That's the love that they had for one another. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war have perished. 
So we look at chapter 31 of, of 1 Samuel and, and chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, we see the fall of Saul, which is important to recognize, but I wanted us to see the fall of Saul in light of the heart of David. Not celebrating over the defeat of his enemy, but mourning for him. Mourning for him because Saul's not okay. Mourning for Jonathan because he's going to miss his relationship with him. But David understood about the life hereafter, didn't he? When his baby died, what did he say? He can't come to me, but what? I will go to him. The picture that David gives us of a man after God's own heart. Relinquish the bitterness and the anger in our lives. And enjoy the freedom that it brings. Amen? Why don't you stay with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. For the truth that your word declares to us. Lord, we just ask, Father, as we just desire to apply, God, it's, it's one thing to hear, it's one thing to see, it's one thing to understand, and another thing to say, yeah, I'm going to apply that to my life. I'm going to relinquish that bitterness. I'm going to relinquish that hurt. I'm going to relinquish those things that have been done to me in my life, and those things which I think someone needs to pay, and I'm going to entrust them in the hands of God, and I will be set free. And whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And I may have to relinquish those things ten times a day, but eventually they'll be gone. Eventually they'll stay where I put them. Every time that Amalekite raises his head in my life and he says, Oh, here's those hurts and those people who've done you wrong, and I think we should kill them, and I did this, and I want my reward, and you know he's trying to feed that flesh. We have to put him down. And we have to turn toward the Lord and trust Him. Because we desire to be men and women after God's own heart. That we obey God, not because of what we can get. That we obey God because we love Him. And that's just what we do. We're carrying the rock for Him. We're doing those things for Him. Or we're not doing those things for Him. Not for me. Father, we pray that You would be glorified, magnified in our lives. God, that we would focus upon You. That You would be that central understanding in our life. Central focus. That we're turned towards You. That our eyes are on You. That we're, we're so enraptured in your presence and in your word and in your love and in your spirit that God we're able to be so much more than what we are <coughs> we find that it's your feet Lord we pray that you would do a work in each of us as we let go and allow God to minister his healing allow him to set us free we give you all the praise and the glory for what you are and will continue to do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out in a word of worship. I invite you guys to hang out and worship with us. Afterwards, I will meet you.
around the table of cookies. If anybody sees Noe try to run for the back door, someone tackle him so he doesn't eat them all. <laughs>